Tonight's objective, this is important, is to discuss the history of the New Testament. Tonight will not primarily be a defense of the New Testament's reliability. We will discuss parts of the reliability of the Old Testament, specifically at the end. But mainly tonight we're discussing when were these books written, what makes up the canon, when did the canon come into being. We'll even uh, define a little better tonight what the canon actually means. We'll discuss the reliability of the New Testament. How do we know it's God's word, right? We'll discuss that mainly next week and the week following uh, as we look at the Gospels, we look, we look at the, uh, the patristic period, which is like the first four centuries, uh, the apostolic fathers, and uh, early church history will give us a lot of clues in the reliability of those things. Um, we'll look at the manuscripts, um, the so-called errors. We'll look at the main uh, people today who oppose the New Testament reliability. Here's a fun teaser. It is true that there's about 400,000 errors found in the transcripts and are copies of the New Testament. It's about three times the amount of words that are actually in the New Testament. So how on earth can the New Testament be reliable with that many errors? Um, now, I want to leave you with that. We're going to discuss it next week. That's the teaser. Uh, because while that seems shocking... Um, when people who oppose the word of God throw out this number, and it's, it's true, they leave out vital information about these errors. And we'll discuss that next week. But tonight, we're on the history of the Old Testament. We do need to reiterate a point at the beginning that we made about the Old Testament that also applies to the New Testament. This is, this is crucial to like our whole study this year. We've argued in our defense of the Old Testament, and we've argued in our rejection of the apocryphal books, that God alone determines what His Word is. It is the Word of God because God has declared it to be and has brought it into being. This is not the way most people think the canon came into being. It's not the way Roman Catholicism, called Catholicism approaches Scripture. They would argue that the church determines what is Scripture and authoritative. They would argue that the Word of God exists because of the church. We would say, of course not. The church exists because of the Word of God. And, and one of the problems here is, is this. If we mentioned last, year, or last week with the apocryphal writings, if, if a book can come into existence but not be considered scripture or authoritative until a much later time when the church determines it to be, logically that makes no sense. It doesn't make any sense. How can God's Word come into existence but not be God's word until it is later determined by man that it is God's word. You see how ludicrous that is? In other words, God's word is his word at the moment it is spoken and brought into existence through the Holy Spirit himself. This is incredibly important to note for our discussion on the New Testament at the very beginning. The reason is because many people will claim that the New Testament came into existence as a canon at a later date than when it was actually written. In other words, they would say, how can we truly believe that the New Testament is the word of God and authoritative if a bunch of men determine it to be at various councils in the patristic period? Specifically, you see in the late 390s, two specific synods that happened where most people think that that is when the canon was determined. Now, I want to take a quick side note and, and um, define something really quick. Canon simply means a collection of the Word of God. It puts in one, uh, one book or collection or entirety what is Scripture. So if it's not in canon, it would not be considered Scripture. However, this is important to understand. Scripture is not Scripture because it is in the canon. So even though the canon the collection of the writings of Scripture may have come into existence at a later date, like having a closed canon when all the books were considered to be authoritative. That does not mean that the Scripture was not the Scripture or understood to be Scripture. Does that make sense? So in other words, though 396, which we'll talk about, 397, I'm sorry, 393 and 397, which we'll see in a second, though that was the first time you see in written form all 27 books of the New Testament, these books were authoritative and considered scripture when they were written. And they were accepted that way. You'll understand more of what I mean when we talk about the reason for these synods 
and these councils in the patristic period. We need to know this right now, that we reject that something can come into existence, God's word namely, but not be considered scripture or authoritative till later on when man determines it. We have to reject that right now. To believe that is to nullify our argument of the Old Testament canon. To believe that would be to nullify our argument, in some sense, against the Apocrypha. We would simply be no different than Roman Catholics. So we believe that these books were the very word of God, and the continuation of his word of the Old Testament, based on the fact that God has spoken them, and they claim to be the word of God. Therefore, no man, say no man, no man has ever determined what is scripture and what isn't. Understand that as believers today. No man has determined what is Scripture and what isn't. That is the role of God himself. And just as we have discussed, God has always been the one responsible for speaking, for revealing, and writing his word. And God will always be the, res- the one responsible for preserving and protecting his word. The formation of the canon, therefore, was under divine control because God is sovereign over all these things, especially the preservation of his word. This is an important introduction because at times tonight, our discussion, uh, during our discussion, it will seem like we're bringing credibility to the New Testament based on man's opinion or history. But I want to ask you to remember that tonight our objective is not the self-authenticating nature of scripture. Tonight we are discussing the history of the New Testament. The next two weeks we'll be discussing the reliability based on historical findings and scholarship, okay? It is also important to understand that Scripture is not Scripture because it isn't canon, like I mentioned, but it has always been, and you're going to see again here in a few moments why these uh, synods and councils existed, okay? So let's begin. When we speak of the canon regarding the New Testament, we're referring to the closed set of books or writings or letters that make up the New Testament. 27 in total. None are lacking and all belong. There are no other books that are, new, that are in the New Testament. We reject the Gospel of Mary. We reject the Gospel of Thomas. We reject the other later apocryphal writings that actually come up in the first century as well. There are no other books. This determining was what This determining what was indeed scripture and what was not was a discussion and it was a debate throughout the patristic period. Again, the patristic period is the first four centuries. Determining the canon was a process that was conducted first by Jewish rabbis and scholars um, and later by early Christians. It was originally the the canon, the gathering together of the books to come with a a closed canon to say this is scripture was originally a, a response to Marcion And the Gnostics, if you were here a few years ago, we went through Colossians. We titled the the series that you're beyond the experience. And we talked about Paul writing, Gnosticism was big in Colossae. And so actually these, um, the the gathering of the canon was originally a response to Marcion and the Gnostics. Well, who's Marcion and what are the Gnostics? Well, Marcion rejected the Old Testament in the early 2nd century. And he only accepted Paul's writings as scripture. Now, he had a a large following, and this is what he maintained. He maintained that the original apostles had corrupted Jesus' teaching with legalism. And he actually, this is nuts, he actually distinguished that the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament were two different gods. This led, inevitably, to Gnosticism. The Gnostic believes in acquiring special, mystical knowledge as the means for salvation. In fact, according to Gnostic beliefs, there is a great God that is good and perfect, but he's impersonal and unknowable. And this creator of the universe was actually a lesser deity. He was a cheap knockoff of the true God. This true God wanted to create a flawless material universe, but messed up. So instead of having a utopia, we, people, ended up with a world infected with pain, misery, and intellectual and spiritual blindness. That all matter is now corrupt, it's all evil. However, when this lesser deity created man, he accidentally gave humanity a spark of the true God's spirit, making man inherently good soul trapped in the confines of an evil material body. 
Interesting, yes? This is Gnosticism. This is actually what led to men realizing that there needed to be a collected canon of sacred writings, of Scripture. This was in order to oppose such heresy as well as others. There is now a need to conclude what was indeed the Word of God and what wasn't. The, uh, the consensus of the ca- canon happened gradually. So meaning what was included as script, to be scripture happened naturally and gradually, essentially with the writings as they came into being and were accepted and circulated around the church. However, the writings of the New Testament did not become scripture as a response to Martian and Gnosticism. You understand that? It wasn't all of a sudden that scripture became scripture because we need to say this is scripture so that we can oppose Martian and Gnosticism. No, no, no. They were already accepted as scripture. The process of putting together a canon, the collection of scripture, was a response to these things. So the question comes, well, how then were these writings that make up the New Testament recognized as scripture? What was the process? You say that they were already accepted as scripture, but how do we know that? What did that look like? Well, the gospels were the first to attain general recognition with the acceptance of, or with the exclusion of John, which we'll talk about later. They actually, they, these, the early church, uh, was excited to include more than one gospel in the canon. Churches in different cities or regions were more closely associated with a specific gospel, but as contact among these churches developed, they began sharing their manuscripts and traditions, and thus the acceptance and use of the gospels came to be seen as a sign of unity among the church. We're going to talk next week about uh, the so-called contradictions of the gospel, which, um, of course, uh, we don't we don't accept. We don't believe that there are contradictions. We believe that there's a specific purpose for all these things. We'll talk about that next week. The differences that do appear in some Gospels that people would say is precisely one of the reasons the early Christians included all of them. Other Gospels, as I mentioned before, were floating around during this time. You had the Gospel of Mary, the Gospel of Thomas, more books we'll talk about next week. These were rejected and not considered to be God's Word. So after the Gospels, Paul's works and Acts earned recognition almost immediately. The shorter books at the end of the New Testament weren't accepted until later. Revelation wasn't accepted fully, completely as the church until the end of the 3rd century. Again, when I say accepted, I'm not saying it wasn't Scripture. This, this is the fallacy of man. This is the sin of man coming into effect here. We'll discuss why these were the actual Word of God when they came into existence. The end of the 4th century consensus was made on what should be included and what shouldn't be. It was actually not decided by a specific council, but was rather accepted as a whole among the church. So the Synod of Hippo in AD 393 is the synod that people would say, this is when the canon was determined. You see, the New Testament can't be the word of God because it didn't get accepted until 393 at the Synod of Hippo. This was indeed the synod which listed for the first time the 27 New Testament books. But the Synod of Hippo did not confer upon them any authority which these scriptures did not already possess. They simply recorded their previously established canonicity. And this is important, again, many people argue, how could it really be God's word and authoritative in all of life if it didn't come into being as a canon until the Synod of Hippo? But remember, these were synods and councils based on heresies and false teaching. It's the reason these gatherings happened throughout the patristic period. These gatherings, these synods, these councils, the Council of Chalcedon, the Synod of Hippo, and the others, they were gatherings to protect and preserve the Word of God. They were never intended to determine what was the Word of God. The Word of God had already been established. These councils, this is crucial, these councils were dealing with defending things like the incarnation of Christ, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the sacraments, those who would turn away from Christ under persecution and then want to come back into the church. That's what these things were dealing with. Heresies and false teachers and how they would approach them. We'll look more at those councils in the next two weeks. But let's now look and transition into the history of the New Testament events. When was each book written? Who wrote it? So Heather, are you back there for me? Sweet. All right. 
We've, we've got slides. I'm going to ask you to kind of read with me as I go along. This is so this next part isn't boring and you fall asleep. So uh, you follow. Now, all the information I'm going to say is up there, but these will be the bullet points, okay? And again, I'll make this available uh, in my notes. So the death and resurrection of Jesus, depending on what you believe about when Jesus was born, when his ministry began, was either around 30 A.D. or 33 A.D. Those would be the two dates believed to be the crucifixion of Christ and then his resurrection. James, his brother, becomes converted somewhere around that time. Paul also is converted around 33 or 34 A.D. In 37, 36, 37 A.D., James sees Paul in Jerusalem. James was the leader of the Jerusalem church, and he wrote his letter to the 12 tribes of the dispersion, James, around mid-40s. Some people would say 42, some say 44 to late 49 even, but uh, I think the most accurate would be around 42, 44 A.D. Paul then goes on his first missionary journey around 40, 46, 47. He writes his letter to the Galatians around 48, 49, and then the Apostolic Council is in Jerusalem around 48, 49 A.D. So we have the two first um, letters written in the New Testament, James and Galatians. Ironically, two of the most recent converts of those who wrote the New Testament. Paul then immediately goes on a second missionary journey. He writes his first letter to the Thessalonians around 49 to 51 A.D. while he was in Corinth. He wrote his second letter to them shortly after while he was still in Corinth. And then he wrote 1 Corinthians. Here's what's cool about the letters to the Corinthians. You know there are actually four letters to the Corinthians, not just two. We have two, but there's mention of two other letters to the Corinthians in First and Second Corinthians. According to First Corinthians chapter five, verse nine, he had written a letter previously. So First Corinthians is actually a second letter to them. He writes this while he's in Ephesus um, between 53 and 55 A.D. This was near the end of his three-year stay. If you remember, we just did Ephesians last year. We talked about his three-year stay in Ephesus. We talked about what was happening in Ephesus. So while he was there, the study we just did um, last semester, he was writing to the Corinthians. After this letter, Paul writes his third, which was a tearful letter according to 2 Corinthians, and then finally, his fourth letter to 4 Corinthians, which we have and know as 2 Corinthians. And this was around A.D. 55 to 56. So um, you see the 4 Corinthians letters. The 4 Corinthians letters happened in that time. Now, according to church history, it is believed that Matthew is the first gospel written. And it came into existence sometime between 50 and 60 A.D., now, we'll talk about this next week. The Gospels are known as formally anonymous. Formally anonymous. What this means is they don't include the names of their authors. Like Paul writes, I, Paul, I'm writing this in my own hand. I, Paul, a servant and bondservant of Christ Jesus to the, you know, blah, 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 to the saints and Ephesus who are, uh, uh, etc. right? So the Gospels don't have this claim. Now, it's a, it would be assumed, obviously, because of the names of the book, so that gives it away. But there actually is opposition to who wrote the four Gospels. Um, those would be critics and skeptics of the New Testament because they don't claim who the authors are. It's known as formally anonymous. However, this was the norm with ancient biographies. Just so you know, the normal writing of an ancient biography was that they would be formally anonymous and not claim who were the authors were. We'll discuss that next week. Scholars suggest that the prominent church in Antioch of Syria, which included Jewish and Gentile believers, was the intended audience, first and foremost, of Matthew. However, Matthew, like the rest of the New Testament, was circulated rapidly and widely. Paul goes on his third missionary around 52 to 57 A.D., um, along this time, he ends up visiting James in Jerusalem at the end. He had hoped, if you, if you, if you read Romans, you'll, you'll get this. He had hoped to travel uh, to Rome and then to Spain, but he first needed to go to Jerusalem to deliver the money he had collected for the church there. The book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, was written by Paul when he was in Corinth around A.D. 57. During this time, the Gospel of Mark was also written somewhere between A.D. 50 and 60. Um, it's believed to be late 50s. Some people potentially say late 60s. Here's what's cool about Mark. Mark is not an account of Mark. Mark is an account of Peter. 
It's believed that pa- Peter passed on reports of the words and deeds of Jesus to his attendant and writer, John Mark. Did you know that Mark was not an eyewitness or an apostle of Jesus? But he was the writer for Peter. He also joined Paul and became his delegate to Asia Minor, as you'll see a little later. Interestingly enough, unlike the Gospel Matthew and the Gospel Luke, because Mark was the words of, or the, the testimony of Peter, Mark, the Gospel of Mark, holds back praise for Peter, unlike Luke and Matthew. And it's in Mark that you actually see the weaknesses of Peter more so than any other gospel. Isn't that cool? Mark was also written in Rome, but again was composed for the wider church as the record of the apostolic testimony of Peter. Now, around 60 AD, Paul arrived in Rome. This is when Luke was written. He did not write Luke. Luke wrote Luke. Luke was accompanying Paul and wrote his gospels so that his readers would understand. This is cool. Luke wrote his gospels with with kind of a theme element to it so that um, those who would read it would understand that the gospel is for both Jews and Gentiles alike. This is really cool because Luke was with whom? Paul. Paul was the apostle sent to the Gentiles. I mean, you think about Romans, you think about Galatians, this, you think about Ephesians. This was Paul's life work. So, working so closely with Luke, it's interesting to see how you would see the similarities between the two and the purposes of their writings. Really neat. Paul then comes under house, house arrest in Rome around AD 62. He summons Mark, as I mentioned before, to serve as his delegate to Asia Minor. Now, during this time, pause for a second. Isn't it cool that this, like, actually happened? So, sometimes I feel like, you know, you get so caught up, especially those of you who grew up in the church, you just kind of grew up being told this all happened, kind of, you know, it can become, uh, if we're honest, I think sometimes for some people, like, it's just a tale of stories, and they're kind of like veggie tales. you know what I mean? You just, you've heard it, and it does, it's not really personal, but um, we'll, we'll discuss next week, too, the, the antiquity of the New Testament. The New Testament writings is the number one most copied manuscript in all of history. Over a thousand. We'll talk about it next week. Pliny, seven. Seven manuscripts. So it's just so cool when you when you see the, the reality in the series. It's like, this happened. This happened. We'll talk next week uh, how we know for sure that this did happen. So Paul is under house arrest in Rome, AD 62. During this time, Paul, while he's under house arrest, chained to a soldier, we talked about that. This is when he writes a number of epistles. We discussed this last year when we did our study of Ephesians. He wrote Ephesians, followed it up with his letter to the Philippians. Then he writes Philemon. And of course, he writes Philemon while he's writing Colossians. And Philemon is written because Onesimus, who was Philemon's slave, comes to Paul while he's in Rome. Paul sends Onesimus, the slave of Philemon, back and says, accept this as this man as a brother. Philemon is one of my favorite letters in the New Testament. Um, and so what's cool is Onesimus and Tychicus actually take these letters and go back. I mean, uh, someday I want to teach on Philemon. How cool Onesimus, the slave, is the one delivering the letter to Philemon from, from Paul. Now, Philemon was one of the elders in Colossae, which is why Colossians went along with Tychicus and Onesimus. The Gospel of Luke was followed up by the writing of Acts around AD 62. In fact, um, in the early days, Luke and Acts were combined together. They were split in the New Testament canon because they wanted to keep the four Gospels and then Acts. But Luke and Acts were uh, considered to be, uh, in, in, in essence, one unit. So if, what's cool is if you're ever in your quiet time, you're reading through Luke, you want to read through Luke, I suggest this. When you finish Luke, go right into, go right into Acts and let the story continue. AD 62 is also the year that James the Just, the brother of Jesus who wrote James, was martyred. Paul was released from house arrest and resumed his ministry around AD 62 to 64, which is when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. Peter wrote his first epistle in AD 64 to 65 from Rome. Mark was with him at this time. This was also, if you know your history, around the time of the great fire in Rome. Under Nero's reign, the majority of Rome burned to ashes, and of course, who got blamed? The Christians. 
Uh, Nero was a lunatic, a psychopath. He ended up killing himself. One of the worst persecutions in the history of the church came under Nero, and it began to break out specifically around this time, 62 and 64. Paul was placed back in prison, um, and he writes his second letter to Timothy, which is Paul's last writing. Peter, as well, wrote his last letter during this time, which is, of course, Second Peter. Now, this is taking place between AD 64 to AD 67. Peter and Paul are martyred shortly after uh, these last writings were written. This happens when they are in Rome. They die under Nero's persecution. We have a few books left. Hebrews was written most likely before AD 70, the late 60s. The reason it's believed that it's before AD 70 is because at the end it mentions Timothy and the others. And because there's no mention of the destruction of the temple yet in Hebrews. Which the talk of the temple and the sacraments and things of the like are kind of a common theme throughout Hebrews. And you would, you know, if you know your history as well, AD 70, Jerusalem, uh, the temple, is destroyed. Jerusalem is destroyed in AD 70. Well, the author of Hebrews doesn't write about this, so it would be believed, along with other facts, that this happens before AD 70. Now, the author himself of Hebrews is unknown. Many people um, associate it as Paul. In fact, it was believed in the early church to possibly be Paul, or at least a Pauline companion. We know it would indeed at least be a Pauline companion because Hebrews 13.23 reveals that he was clearly associated with and ministered with Timothy. Jude, who was another brother of Christ, who was converted later as well, writes his letter, most likely in the late 60s as well. This leaves us with just five books remaining. And this is, of course, all written by whom? John. The Gospel of John. Now, I have an asterisk here. So, uh, you eschatology, I see a smile. Some of you eschatology nuts, you know why the asterisk, and we'll talk about this in a second. Uh, The Gospel of John was most likely, most commonly uh, believed to be written from Ephesus somewhere around 80, uh, 70, and 100. I I give a huge gap there, and I'll tell you why in a reason. Now, most people believe it's probably written between 80 and 90. Uh, This would also be the time that he writes 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John from Ephesus. Irenaeus, um, who was actually like Paul's grand disciple. Yeah, John Polycarp was, Polycarp was his disciple. Irenaeus was his disciple. Well, Irenaeus in Against Heresies writes this. He reports on the basis of earlier, this is really cool, he reports on the basis of earlier sources, and I quote, that John, this is cool, John received the revelation almost in our own time toward the end of the reign of Domitian. This is the beginning of the second century. Well, Domitian's reign ended in 8096. This is why it's most commonly believed that it would be between 85 and 95. Because again, Irenaeus is the grand disciple, just two generations removed from John himself. And he quotes it that it was, he writes this jet revelation just at the end of Domitian's reign, which ended in 96 AD. So Revelation is believed by the majority of believers to have been written somewhere around AD 94 to 96 while John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Now, I have an asterisk here because some have argued that it was written much earlier than this, believed to be written under Nero's reign around AD 58 through 64. One of the reasons they believe this is because this is before the fall of Jerusalem, and they would believe that Revelation 11, verse 1 and 2 specifically would be an example of a prophecy of the Roman siege and destruction of the earthly Jerusalem temple, which happened during the Jewish war. Now, depending on your eschatology and all of that, eschatology is your belief of the study of the end times, essentially, um, will determine kind of what you believe at when John was written. Honestly, that debate is for another time, another topic, and definitely not important for what we're going to be discussing uh, this semester at Refuge. All right, everybody say hi. 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 You're doing so good. Uh, in, in the back of my head, I'm going, I just want to preach. And we're about three weeks away. But this, is, but this is good stuff. That gives us, you can get rid of that, Heather, thank you. That gives us a quick summary and overview of the writings of the New Testament, as well as some historical background. 
Now this is now where it gets a little interesting. I want to transition briefly to discussing the accepting of these letters as scripture and authoritative. So we're going to begin a little bit of reliability. This is still more history than reliability, but some of these things will will uh, kind of plant in both camps. Very early on, as the letters themselves were being written and circulated, the New Testament letters were being recognized as scripture. How do we know this? Well, Paul. Paul in 1 Timothy 5.18 considered Luke's writings to be authoritative, just as authoritative as the Old Testament. Because in 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul says, For the scripture says, and then he quotes from Deuteronomy 25.4 and Luke 10.7 and says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Old Testament, New Testament. But Paul says, the scripture says, and he quotes both. Remember, this is cool. Luke was written around AD 62. Paul is writing this, affirming Luke is scripture between AD 62 and 64. You see what's really cool about this. For people who say, well, Scripture wasn't even considered Scripture until the Synod of Hippo in 393 or 7, whichever one it is. Uh, actually, no. Paul, between 62 and 64, affirms that what Luke is writing is Scripture. That's a 300-year swing, right? Paints a little different picture. Now, Peter also recognized Paul's writings as Scripture. I love this one. For, for reliability... Of when the scripture came in to be scripture, this is a great verse. In 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16, know these verses. 2 Peter 3, 15 through 16. It says this And count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Peter's writing this, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all, say all as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, amen, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do what? The other scriptures. So Peter is now attributing all of Paul's letters to be uniform with the wisdom of God with All of the other scriptures. The reference here would be to the Old Testament. Now here's what's so awesome about this. Peter affirms this when he wrote 2 Peter. This is just before Peter's martyred. This is the same time that Paul's martyred. Paul, when Peter writes this, had all 13 of his New Testament letters already written. So when Peter says all of Paul's letters, it's all 13. So Peter is affirming around 64 to 67 that all of Paul's letters are scripture. How awesome is that? We're continuing to paint a different picture. You also see that letters were being circulated among the churches. Now, this is another really important thing. You guys ever have a conversation with somebody? I've I've given you a story of my friend one time that I grew up in the church with, and he became very liberal, involved in these churches that were uh, just... It was nonsense. It was all man-made doctrine and practice and kind of a, a, a love fest. And, you know, God is love, amen, but God's a holy God. Um, and his love towards those who believe is a radical, mercy-filled, grace-filled love. But um, not everybody is loved with that love because those who reject Christ and are, are under God's wrath. Right, So it's, it's not sufficient just to preach the love of God. You do understand that. You have to preach the whole counsel and character of God to fully understand the love of God and the holiness of God. But this, this friend of mine said to me, Dave, what? Because I, I confronted him. He's a friend. And he had posted this post that was totally against Scripture. And I said to him, I said, Brother, you, you do realize what you're posting is absolutely false in, a, in, a, in opposition to Scripture. And he said, Dave, wake up. Paul's letters were not intended to be in our inbox in 2000, and at that time it was like 14 or 2015. In other words, when Paul was writing these things, when these letters are written, this man is arguing, and many, this is not crazy, many people argue, I mean it is crazy, but many people argue this, that hey, when these letters were written, they were written for a specific audience, a specific city, 
It is not to be applied to all. They're nice moral stories. They tell about Jesus. But we're not to read Ephesians and go, okay, what does this mean today? This is the same thing yesterday, today, and forever, right? So how does it radically transform my life today? They would argue, no, it's not. It was meant for a specific city, for a specific audience. Well, guess what? The Bible says otherwise. This is really cool. Because, look at Colossians 4.16. When Paul who is the author of Colossians, instructs the church saying this, When this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. Anybody know what letter he's referencing to here? Ephesians. This is the Ephesians letter. In other words, now wait a second. Why would the church in Ephesus need to read the letter that Paul wrote to those in Colossae. Colossians was written very... Now, Colossians and Ephesians have a lot of similarities, but they're going up two different things. Again, we mentioned, if you know your, your history and you were here a few years ago, Colossians is written because there's a massive wave of Gnosticism in Colossae. This special mystic revelation. This was not an issue in Ephesus. They had other issues. They had the sex god. They had the scholars. They had people coming in and out. So if, if Colossians was only meant to be read and applied to those in Colossae, why does Paul command his letter that he wrote to be read in Laodicea as well? So my buddy's wrong because Paul, the author, says, no, this is to, supposed to be read and moved and read and moved. You also see this in 1 Thessalonians 5.27 when Paul says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. Now, I want to transition to Hebrews. The, he, the author of Hebrews, in the first chapter, writes in verse 1 and 2, and he says this. Hebrews is one of my favorite letters. Verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers how? By the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. What, Gnostics? Jesus also created the world? Same God? All right, we're, 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 we're blowing Gnosticism out the door. This, Hebrews, affirms the very gospels which recorded the acts and words of Jesus. If he speaks to us in the last days through his son, you now see the importance of the written word, especially the gospels. Paul himself claimed to be speaking the word of God in 2 Corinthians 13:3 and in chapter 2:17. And in 1 or 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17, Paul says, "For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ." You also see this more so in 1 Corinthians 2.13 when Paul says this, And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. Now, Peter says the same thing even more powerfully. This is awesome. In 2 Peter chapter 1, when he gives credibility, this is important for John's letters too. This is big. In 2 Peter... Chapter 1, he gives credibility to himself and the other apostles and speaks of the very prophecy given to him. In chapter 1, beginning in verse 16, all the way through 21. If you got a Bible, go there. We'll do an exercise just to wake up. Second, we're almost done, by the way. 2 Peter, chapter 1, beginning in verse 16. This is crucial in affirming John's writings as well. I'll tell you why in a second. 2 Peter, chapter 1, verse 16. Picking up in verse 16, it says this. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, saying, This is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Here you go, guys. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, 
to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Key verses 20 and 21. Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Let's read that again. No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Verse 21. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Wow. Powerful. It is important to know that when Peter wrote this, the only books not yet written was Hebrews, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, and Revelation. So even here, Peter would be affirming 20 of the 27 New Testament books as Scripture before he dies. And the only reason the other seven wouldn't be included, so to speak, at this point is because they were not written yet. But, who wrote six of these? Jude, and then John wrote five. It's believed a Pauline companion in Hebrews. But let's just focus on John. Because Peter saying this brings, uh, affirms John as a writer of Scripture as well. Because John was also on the holy mountain. John also heard the voice of God. John was also with Christ. All the qualifications that Peter gives to the people who were speaking the prophetic word coming from God, John fits those qualifications. So even though the five letters that John wrote weren't in existence yet, this is affirming already John's ministry as an apostle. You also see in the next couple centuries, which we'll discuss in the next two weeks, the Apostolic Fathers acknowledging the New Testament Scripture. Clement of Rome mentioned at least eight New Testament books, 8095. Ignatius of Antioch acknowledged about seven books in 8115. Polycar, who was the disciple of John, uh, acknowledged 15 books in 8108. Later, Irenaeus, who was Polycar's disciple, mentioned 21 books in 8185. Hippolytus, that's a fun word to say, say it. Hippolytus. Good, you're awake. Hippolytus recognized 22 books in AD 170 to 235. The New Testament books that received the most controversy were Hebrews, James, 2 Peter, and 2 and 3 John. All right, we're, we're, we're in the home stretch. We're in the, we're in the closing parts for tonight as we discuss the history of the, Old, or the New Testament. The first canon, again, collection and affirmation of books that are Indeed, the Word of God. The first canon was the Muratorian canon. This was compiled in AD 170. Muratorian canon, AD 170. This canon included all of the New Testament books except Hebrews, James, and 3 John. In AD 363, the Council of Laodicea stated that only the Old Testament, along with one apocryphal writing, and 26 books of the New Testament everything but Revelation, were canonical and were to be read in the churches. The Council of Hippo in AD 393 and the Council of Carthage in AD 397 also affirmed the same now 27 books as authoritative. So this is the first time you see the canon as 27. We've just discussed they were already considered Scripture. This is bringing them into a grouping to defend the very Word of God. Now, the councils, when they were determined what was and what was not, when they got rid of the apocryphal writing, when they rejected the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Hermas, the Gospel of Mary, when this was happening, they had a number of principles that they took into, fact, or took into mind as they determined these things. The four of them were this. Number one, was the author an apostle or have a close connection with an apostle? Number two, is the book being accepted by the body of Christ at large? The true body of Christ. Number three, does the book contain consistency of doctrine in orthodox teaching? And number four, did the book bear evidence of high, holy, and spiritual values that would reflect the work of the Holy Spirit? Again, when you look at those four principles of determining in these councils what's canonical and what's not, 
it's crucial to remember the church did not and does not determine the canon. We understand that, right? No early church council decided on the canon. It was God and God alone who determined which books belonged in the Bible. This was simply a matter of God imparting to his followers what he'd already decided. The human process of collecting the books of the Bible was flawed. But God, in his sovereignty, and despite our ignorance, sin, and stubbornness, brought the early church to the recognition of the books that he had inspired. So before we conclude, I want to discuss briefly, literally really briefly, the makeup and the order of the New Testament today. You ever wonder why the New Testament is in the order it is, or why the chapter and verse uh, subdivisions? Well, here we go. The New Testament begins with the Gospels. I mentioned to you Luke and Acts were together, but then they kept the four Gospels together, moved Acts after the Gospels. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. These are in chronological order of when they were written. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Then you have Acts. Then we have, and this is cool, the 13 Pauline letters. Boom. This should help you as you try to memorize like, the New Testament books. You've got now, right in order, after Acts, the, all 13 of Paul's letters. And check this out. They are organized in size, largest to smallest. If more than one letter was written to the same community or individual, the letters were kept together. Hence, First and Second Thessalonians, First and Second Corinthians, First and Second Timothy. Now, Hebrews was included after Paul's letters immediately because, again, some people in the early church believed Paul or a Pauline companion wrote the letter. After Hebrews, we have the general, the general letters and then Revelation. But here's what's really cool about James all the way through 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. I thought this was neat. This is for my geeks. You'll like this. It is suggested that these letters are engaged, or are, I'm sorry, these letters are arranged in a decreasing order of prominence of the authors. In Galatians chapter 2, verse 9, Paul mentions that James, Peter, and John were pillars in the Jerusalem church. Now, this Pauline list that Paul gives in Galatians 2.9, James, Peter, and John lines up. It mirrors the order of the respective letters in the New Testament. After Hebrews, you have James, 1st and 2nd Peter, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. Pretty cool. Then there is Jude, and then there is Revelation. In the beginning of the church, most books of the Bibles would have circulated as individual scrolls. And a community of believers would have had a cabinet in which they kept the various scrolls with tags on the end to identify their contents. It wasn't until the 2nd and 3rd centuries that books with multiple leaves began to appear with greater frequency. We're going to talk next week about how they started copying letters as they would come in before they would send out the circulated letter. Really cool. One of the reasons we have so many manuscripts today. Also one of the reasons we have so many flaws or errors um, that we'll talk about next week. Now, and, and final, have you ever wondered about chapter and verse divisions? Uh, this is important for you to know as you have your times of reading in the Word and studying the Word. Where these subdivisions came from, what they mean and don't mean, more importantly. Early Christians and Jews actually often cited Scripture with a reference to a book or an author or a textual event but they would not specify where it was. Jesus himself shows us this. So in Mark chapter 12, verse 26, Jesus says, As for the dead being raised, have you not read it in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? So Jesus doesn't say, have you not read it in Exodus chapter 7, verse... No, he says, is the burning bush chapter 7? What's the burning bush? Chapter 1, anybody know? Is it? It is 3, I think. So anyways, he doesn't say Exodus chapter blank, verse blank. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? So you see here, there, there were no like verse subdivisions and chapter subdivisions. You also know this from the earliest manuscripts. As text came to be copied, read, and commented on, some made various attempts to subdivide and label them. Eusebius, a church historian who lived between 260 and 340 A.D., he divided the four Gospels into a number of canons or divisions. Ancient Jewish rabbis did similar subdivisions to the text. Our current today chapter divisions were added, just chapter, were added to the Old Testament and New Testament by a guy named Stephen Langton. 
He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in the early 13th century. He added the divisions to the Latin text and later publications began to follow his format. These divisions were modified by Solomon ben Ishmael around AD 1330 to the Hebrew text. The verse divisions for the Old Testament, however, the the verse divisions are based on the versification standardized by the Ben Asher family. The Ben Asher family were Jewish scribes around AD 900. The New Testament verse divisions were added to a Latin Greek diglot in 1551 by Robert Stephanus Estienne, who was a printer from Paris. Je m'appelle. Bonjour. The first English Bible to have verse divisions was the Geneva Bible of 1560. So why is this important? It's important when you read scripture to understand that these divisions are not always natural. Nor are they divinely inspired. So you, when you read um, like the end of 1 Corinthians 10... I understand the letter picks right back up in 11. There were no, even the little, like, uh, you, you have like the subheaders, like Jesus walks on the water. You know, then you, Jesus meets a woman in Canaan. Jesus talks about his crucifixion. Those also uh, weren't there. So it's important to know this because as you read scripture, you have to understand that Paul or Matthew or Mark or Peter, those who are writing this, are writing one entire thing. You can't take any verse out of the context of the entire letter. You can't do it. A text without context becomes a what? A pretext. So you cannot take these things and separate them from all that these authors are saying during these times. Okay? Next week we pick up on the reliability. Uh, Thank you for your attention tonight. Again, I know that this isn't easy. This is the history. Next week we're going to pick up with the manuscripts We'll talk, if you guys remember the Old Testament Reliability Week, pretty intriguing. That's what next week will be. Then we're going to look at the patristic period. And then we're going to look at the Reformation. And we pick up then preaching 2 Corinthians. The self-authenticating nature of Scripture. The sufficiency of Scripture. Where does faith actually come from if it doesn't come from these types of things? And based then on the Word of God, I can't wait for the spring... We're talking about, therefore, because we have the Word of God, it is the Word of God. The Word of God is sufficient for all things that pertain to life and godliness. How ought a Christian live in today's crazy, evil world? What should a Christian believe about war? What should a Christian believe about patriotism? How should a Christian act towards abortion? How should a Christian speak and act and live and teach in regards to marriage or dating or sex or homosexuality or greed or the workplace, etc.? It's going to be good. So again, just remind you, we're building a foundation this entire semester leading to what I I pray and hope will launch a generation of people who are ready to win uh, this world with the gospel of Jesus Christ and be bold in their witness and be able to give a reason for the hope that they have as they honor Christ the Lord in their hearts as holy.